Hello, and welcome to the family at World Harvest Outreach. How's everyone doing? Good. I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. I am feeling better. Yeah. So I was I was supposed to be here last week uh, speaking and uh, got knocked out with the flu or something. Uh, so thank you all for the kind words, texting, messaging, everybody reaching out to me. Um, it was really appreciated. But I think you're gonna. Enjoy me being here today versus last week wouldn't have been uh, wouldn't have been good at all. So um, today, if you're uh, bringing a Bible or following along, I'm going to be going through uh, Luke uh, chapter 15. I know, Mary, I didn't give you anything, but we're just going through all of that chapter, really. So um, that's the story of the prodigal son, uh, which I think everyone's probably heard before. Um, I want to pull out some elements, hopefully that. Um, maybe that we haven't thought about or, or dig deeper into some ones that we have seen. But uh, I'm titling this message uh, Rebellion, Repentance, and Restoration. So there's three, three R's there, yeah. Um, so I'll just open in prayer <clears throat> really quickly. And I apologize, I might have to cough a few times. I have my tea up here, but we should be good. So Father, just thank you uh, for the opportunity to speak today. Um, I just really ask that your... Um, your story would really just jump off the page uh, to us, Father, that we would um, be able to interpret and discern the original intention of these stories, these parables, Father, that we're meant to really um, cut through our defenses and speak to our hearts. So, Father, we just thank you, um, and uh, in your name, amen. So, yeah, so Luke 15, just setting the stage here a little bit. Um, this is at a point in Jesus's uh, ministry uh, where he is uh, traveling. So he's traveling uh, to Jerusalem for Passover. So as he's going, um, we're, we're kind of following along in Luke. He's hitting different towns, uh, speaking with people, um, and you almost always see sort of the same uh, characters pop up that he's talking to, right? So he's talking to um, who is Jesus known to be around more than anyone? sinners, tax collectors, like the Gentiles, right? So that's who he's, that's who he's talking to. And um, he's actually sending his disciples out ahead of him. Uh, they're not like the 12 disciples, but other followers. And so they're kind of like, they're his hype guys. Uh, they're kind of letting people know he's coming through. So by the time he gets there, like there's, there's people there to see him. Um, I always kind of get this picture that it kind of sticks in the craw of the Pharisees a little bit, that like he's, he's, He's coming into this town where I think they expect him to be like, oh, a rabbi's coming into town. He's going to want to see the Pharisees. Like, he's going to want to have dinner with us. But he's like, he's having dinner with the lowest of the low, the sinners, the dejected, the people that, um, that they see less than. So um, Luke 15, he's talking to the people he's normally talking to. Um, and he, he tells three different parables um, here. And the first two are very short um, it's about a coin and a lost sheep before the, before the prodigal son story. And really, ultimately, I believe that these stories are meant to speak uh, to the Pharisees of the day, because as you'll see as we open here, um, they're the ones kind of leading this in. So I'll just, I'll read a little bit here and just as we go. And if anyone has questions, thoughts that you want to shout out as you go, um, I love to make these as interactive as possible so I can maybe take a chance to catch my breath. So... Uh, verse 1 here, uh, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. 
verse 2, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So immediately, right, you see that that's what they're angry about. They're angry that he's spending his time with these people that were deemed less than. So uh, the implication here is that they believe he's a sinner too. He's not just spending time with them, the people they don't like. He is is building relationships with them. This isn't, um, because I'm sure the Pharisees uh, spoke to these people or maybe preached to these people, but he's building friendships, having dinners with these people. He's actually, you know, out there building. And so as he's talking to these, the Pharisees are there for some reason, right? It doesn't necessarily say he's there to talk to them, but they're there because they're grumbling and, you know, they're, they're, they're in the background. I kind of always picture them. We, uh, I was in a passion play, uh, well, two different times, really, at Ringgold Church in Waynesboro, and I was one of the Pharisees. I was like one of the chief, chief Pharisees, Caiaphas. And we were always like, we're always in the background of every scene. And the music would play dun, dun, dun. And it would like go over to us and we're like sneering and snickering and like doing this thing. And that's how I always picture them. They're like, they're there, but they're not really there to learn. They might be, you know, sort of passively picking up some of Jesus's message, but they're really there as fault finders, right? They're, they're there to find him. Uh, healing on the Sabbath or, you know, doing something that they, they, they felt that was wrong. And so as he's, as he's telling the stories, um, the, the three uh, stories that, all, that are all told here are all about finding the value in something that they see as worthless. And so the parables are in a direct response to the Pharisees being mad he's talking with sinners. And this is his plea to really show the Pharisees, again, through parable is meant to kind of cut through the defenses. He's showing them the value of the people that they, you know, just can't stand. And so he's using this as a way to, to reach them. And as we read through these, um, these, these three stories, there's three archetypes that you're going to see, like characters, in each one of these stories. Um, and they really represent the people that are, that are there that he's speaking with. So you're going to have the unrighteous sort of character in this story, which, like, if you guys know the prodigal, right, the prodigal son, that's meant to be that person. You're going to have the righteous person or the father um, in that case. And, and some of these other proverbs it'll, or parables, it's like the shepherd or um, one who is searching for what's lost. And then you have a third type, which is the self-righteous. So you have a righteous, unrighteous, self-righteous, and, and that's meant to be the Pharisees, right? So that's, that's the older brother archetype that we're going to hear about. So keep that in mind as we read through these. You're going to see them um, embedded there. Some are more obvious than others, especially with the, the prodigal, but they're, they're all there. And, and again, I really, I really believe that this is in response to Pharisees. That's kind of what he's trying to get through. So in the first parable here, it's the parable of the lost sheep. So that starts... Uh, in verse 4, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous per- persons who need no repentance. So right away, I can tell you this story would have resonated much more with the people of that day than it does with us, right? I mean, 
This was an agricultural people. How many people know someone today that raises sheep? How many people know two families that raise sheep? Three, like, it's, it's, it's much more rare. These people, maybe they weren't farmers, they weren't shepherds, but they were some in that mix, and they probably knew several. This was like a very sort of common practice for them. The first thing I think about, I've never lost a sheep, but I've lost dogs. We've had horses get out. I know Tammy is probably... When we find these, the animal that got away, my first reaction is not a rejoicing, I'm calling all my friends, I'm so happy. There's a little bit of more uh, frustration, you know, building up in me. And I, I think that this is kind of the first indication that Jesus is not just telling us stories. He's actually showing us a heavenly perspective or a heavenly reaction to things that happen to us. So in these circumstances, there is the way that the world deals with things. And again, that's what I'm thinking about. My dog that got out, and I'm mad when, he, when I find him and I bring him back. But Jesus is having this rejoicing moment. He's saying that the shepherd rejoices over this one that is lost. And he's talking about the 99 that are left behind. And, and he says that um, in, in the last verse again. So each one of these first two parables, he's kind of capping it off with kind of, he's putting it in the real world terms of what he's actually saying. He's doing immediate uh, sort of translation of this parable. So he says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Who are the 99 righteous persons in this story that we're just talking about? It's the, it's the Pharisees in actuality, right? He's talking to the Pharisees right there. So they're, they're probably getting pretty mad about this. And I think it's really interesting that he said that there's more joy over the one sinner who repents. And I, like, I, I want to say that this, when I started reading through this, it immediately made me think of uh, the verse, I, I have it here, we, we don't need to go to it, but it, it's Romans 5.20, it says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And that verse, to me, it, outside of the context of these kind of parables, didn't really sit with me, because I, I couldn't fully understand it. But again, it's this heavenly reaction to a very earthly situation. And where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, to me, was very hard for me to, um, to put in practical terms. But I think that's what Jesus is sort of uh, displaying here with these. So we see that. We see the, we see the lost one. We see the ones left behind. We see this, the shepherd um, in this first story, right? That's those, those three archetypes. And I think that the, the Pharisees probably could have understood the concept of this. They were by no means shepherds, uh, you know, in, in terms of physical sheep. But Jesus was really trying to get at them as these were the ones who were supposed to be watching after his flock, right? These were the, the people were supposed to be his children, were supposed to be his sheep in this story. And they were being shepherds that could care less about that one that was lost, right? That was not really what they were focused on. They were kind of inwardly focused. Um, so the next uh, parable here, and again, each one of these is kind of like a stepping stone leading up to this, the, the prodigal son, which is, has a lot more depth to it, but uh, this is verse 8. He says, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the one coin or the coin that I had lost, just so I tell you there was joy before the angels of God 
over one sinner who repents. So the, the literal translation of that coin is a, uh, it's called a drachma. And, and this was like a, a Greek uh, currency. It's no longer around. Um, but I've, I've been trying to understand uh, and look up like what was, this, what was this worth to us? This was, I mean, by, by today's standards, people are kind of estimating it could be between like 30 and $50, depending on where you live. Um, but it was, it was essentially, it was a day's wage for like the common laborer. So, I mean, for us today, if you lost a $50 gift card in your house, I think everybody here, we can probably resonate. We would be turning the lights on, getting our flashlights out, looking under the couch cushions, moving all around, like moving furniture, trying to find this thing. I think to the Pharisees, this really didn't make a whole lot of sense. You have to understand that the Pharisees were the rich people in that day. They were, they had silk robes, they had gold jewelry and rings. Going after this tiny silver coin to them would not have made sense. So this one, for I think for them, was a bit perplexing because they would have they probably wouldn't have searched for it, one, and there wouldn't have been much rejoicing over finding one. This was a common day's wage for, for a laborer. This is like nothing to them. So it's, it's, I think it's starting, again, it's starting to make them think and starting to understand where they see something that has no value or insignificance. Jesus is placing value on the things that they don't, right? And so um, looking at that, we get to, to see the results again. So it's that last verse at the end of the parable. I'll read it again here. He says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I, I think in this picture, I'm getting this picture, of, like first, it's Jesus doing the happy dance over one sinner who repents. And I don't necessarily think that we talk about repenting a lot, right? What is, what's like the, the definition we have of repentance? What was it? It's to turn, right? And I think that a, a repentant sinner in this story and, and the previous one and that we're giving the context, I don't think it necessarily means somebody that has completely turned their life around, right? Their life was going in this direction, like if you can picture me and all of my efforts and all of my adventures in life kind of going in one direction. I don't think a repentant sinner is necessarily someone who has completely changed every part of their life. I think that we get opportunities to repent every day. I think there's like there's all these little opportunities to have a little moment of repentance. And it can be it can be as simple as I don't I don't think I talked to my wife the right way. I think I I think I spoke poorly in that way. I think I'm going to turn. It's this one little it's it's not my whole life. I might have other things that are going in the wrong direction, but I'm like, man, I think I need to turn. I need to speak to Father about that. Father, you show me how I can speak to her, how see her through your eyes. And it's that one turn. And I think that's what he's going nuts over. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to have a complete life turnaround. I think that happens. But I think it can also just be one little act of repentance. And I think that's why I think about with that, just that little coin, something that was so insignificant to them can be something that is there's rejoicing in heaven over. Also, take a look here again at that verse. There is joy before the angels of God. Does, is that saying the angels are rejoicing? 
Who's, who's rejoicing in front of the angels? God is rejoicing. There's, there's some translations that says that there's joy, uh, rejoicing in the presence of angels. I mean, I think the angels could be rejoicing, that's, but that's not what we're seeing. We are seeing God rejoicing over the one that repents. And I, I want us to like, have that picture stick in your mind. And again, it can just be that little turn, and there is rejoicing in heaven over one act of repentance. So let's move into the, the story of the prodigal son. So um, I think the prodigal son is probably my favorite parable um, of, of all the Jesus parables. I've, I've always liked it. I've always um, sort of resonated with it. I think my favorite part is that it is um, one of those representations of like the two side, the ditches on like two sides of the road. As we, as we start to unpack these characters, right, you're going to see that both the older son and the younger son have redeeming qualities. The older son does some things that are good. The younger son does some things that are good. They both have their shortcomings, too. And I think that I, I get that picture of it's that ditch on either side of the road. Um, it's, it's that wisdom that's kept in tension. Does anyone remember um, Mark's messages a while ago, it's about, was it wisdom kept in tension is what you called it with the, the drum uh, analogy you gave? I don't remember the specific verses, but it was like, you know, over here on one side we have um, verses about like, uh, you know, keep, store your treasures in heaven and like, you know, but then uh, over in, in like, you know, be generous and give, give, give without um, withholding. And then over here you have the verse that's like, you know, talking about investing and being wise and being prudent with your money, and it's like, where's which one is right? And it's really, it's this, they're, they're keeping themselves in tension, and the answer is somewhere right in the middle. And so that's, that's what I really enjoy about the prodigal son. Um, so let's, let's get into it here, verse 11. So, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. What is this, um, what is this telling you about the younger son, just right out of the gate? Yeah, that's a great point. <clears throat> what Gary was saying, I don't know if you guys could hear, is like back then you would not have gotten this inheritance unless the father had died. And in this case, does, does, I mean, it, it shows his impatience, at least for one, but it's also showing, he said, I would rather have the money that my father has than have my father. That's, that's what he sees as most important. And I'm, I mean, to anyone who has lost somebody and I mean, I've never received an inheritance, but I would rather have that person back in my life than have some amount of money. The things that you can learn to hear another story from that person, to, to understand, you know, to, to communicate and understand what it was like for them growing up and all these pieces that you don't get to have with someone. It's a very sort of narrow-minded, you know, again, it's, it's kind of this impatient 
impatient picture that we get of this younger son. Does anyone know how, like, how the inheritance worked for multiple sons in that time? So every, it was split. So if they had multiple sons, every son got an equal share. It was sort of split equally, except the oldest got a double portion. So in this case, he has these two sons. Um, it's really kind of split up into thirds. So one son has the two, the older son has the two thirds and the younger has one third. So he's only getting one third. But I mean, it's, we can kind of draw from this. It's a sizable amount. It's, it's, it's something he can leave and go off on his own with. Um, pretty quickly. So, and the idea there too is that the oldest would also be the one to take care of the family. So the oldest got that double share because he would be taking his mother and father and sort of taking the household under his control. So there was kind of that that added on. So yeah, right now we don't know, um, we don't see this the younger son's intention to do anything with it. He just wants what's coming to him. And that's sort of all the father, you know, can kind of know um, for this time. But Obviously, we know what happened. So verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. We don't, um, the story doesn't explicitly tell us what the reckless living is. Um, We get some kind of hints to it later on, uh, some kind of indications of what was going on. Um, But we can basically draw the conclusion it wasn't on bad investments. You know, he wasn't out there trying to make a living or like build something like his father had had. He's kind of doing his own thing. I think he, he had the example that his father laid and he, he had that intentional turning away. This is kind of like, you know, what the fall is for him. And so he had spent everything and a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So, Insult to injury, right? He goes away, but now not only did he spend all his money, but now there's a famine. And, you know, this, this could have been like the Joseph story where he could have had, you know, saved and stored and kind of been prepared for this, where he could have, you know, uh, multiplied the wealth in this time of famine, but he had actually already wasted it all. You know, he had given everything away. So I immediately get the impression that this younger son wasn't really paying attention when he was in his father's house, right? He was, he was impatient, he wanted his money, he wanted to get out, but he wasn't learning from the father what it meant to be like raising a household, taking care of his things, because it's clear that his father does. We find out later on his servants eat well and they don't you know, want for anything, just the servants in the household. So he kind of was raised up in a way and sort of went, went his own way. And I think that's what we see. It reminds me of like the Adam and Eve story. It's like the fall of man. We have this good father who is, who is, uh, who is imparting wisdom on us and is, and is kind of showing us this way, but we want to turn and do things our own way. And I think he's, he's showing in that same, same time, he's showing how his way is higher. That's what essentially he's saying. He's like, I know that the, this is the way my father did things, but I'm going to do it a different way. You know, and the, the younger son... It's not like he wanted this money so he can go buy a property next to his dad's and I want to start my own thing and, you know, be my own man and, and build this household. No, he's, he's very clearly kind of just wanting to squander it, wanting to do things a completely different way. So we see here it says, uh, uh, verse 15 now, 
So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So this is, this is like the lowest of his low, right? He lost all his money. There's a famine. Now he's out there feeding pigs, and he's envying their food. What is, what is the symbolism, or what, what, what can we kind of, what conclusions can we draw about somebody who's taking care of pigs? Again, kind of thinking of the audience for that day. What were the pigs to the Jewish people? Unclean. Unclean. So not only is he in a foreign country, he's living among Gentiles, right? That's the subtext uh, within this story because he's taking care of pigs. They're unclean. They're the lowest of the low. They are just bottom-tier animals. And now not only that, he is envying their food. And it says he's not just envying their food, but no one's giving him anything. So now I'm getting this picture. He's completely destitute. He is relying on others to, sus- to sustain him. He's kind of, he's begging. He's homeless. He's living with the pigs at this point, we can kind of picture. And it's funny because he left his father's house where maybe he was uh, working the fields like his older brother. He had to do a lot of things he didn't want to do. He didn't want to have a reliance on his father. And now he is reliant on the kindness of others for himself to be fed. He's looking at the pigs. He's thinking, man, they have it great. And I think, like, I can picture at this time, this is when, like, Jesus, he's really moving past subtleties, and he's using the analogy to kind of just hit people over the head, like, with the pigs and the... And I, I can kind of see the Pharisees right now just, you know, maybe for the other two parables, they're kind of sitting back there. They don't get it. They're, you know, okay, the coin, whatever. Like, who looks for a coin? But now they're like... They're hearing this story of the prodigal son, and they're like, that's right. He is, he is with the pigs. He's living in filth. This is what's going to happen. Like, I think this was, like, at this point in the story, is pretty validating to them to say, yes, this is what happens when people don't do what they're supposed to do, and, you know, they're reaping the rewards. So this is kind of like the pinnacle of the story for them. They're probably really enjoying this, right? But it goes on. So verse 17, this is kind of, this is his aha moment. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So this is the moment, right? This is actual, this is the actual moment of repentance, right here. When you think of repentance, I think we generally think of what? An apology, the I'm sorry, the forgiveness. This is the moment where the the younger son actually repented. Why? Because he's turning. He's sitting there and he's sitting in the lowest of the low and he begins to think about his father. And he turns. And it's, it's just that, it's, it's, again, it's, it's not his, he's turning his whole life around. It's just one decision to say, wow, if I could just go be a servant in my father's house, that would be amazing. And at this point, we don't really have any indication that he thinks he's going to be reinstated as a son, 
he, he just wants a job and he wants food. So he's going to go be a hired servant. But this is the repentance. This is the point of repentance. And I think that that's important for us to realize. There can be a repentant moment that we're not going to know about. And it can be a completely a decision that's internal, something that might not be completely visible. He hasn't walked. He hasn't gone to see his father yet. He hasn't made that journey. But this was the moment where he actually repented. And so what does he do? He turns back to his father, and he remembers his love. And then he starts to practice his apology, right? So he's starting to get ready to uh, sort of humble himself and tell his father, you know, he's ready to come back as a servant. So just to pause for a moment, what do we think, where does the father think the younger son is right now? He probably thinks he's dead. And I, we actually, it, it, it tells us that here a little bit later. But his son went away to a foreign country. He doesn't call. He doesn't write, probably. And now that foreign country has had a famine. So the prospects are not good. And we kind of get the idea that they, they haven't heard from him. He's completely sort of disconnected his life from them. So at this point, the father is, he's, he's presuming him to be dead. But watch what happens here. Verse 20. And he arose, this is the, the prodigal, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him and said to him, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So first thing to notice there, what doesn't he say? If we go back in verse 19, what did, what did he plan? What, what, what was his planned apology supposed to say? I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. But in verse 21, we see, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Stop. He doesn't even get the chance to get out the full apology where he wants to be a hired servant because his father is completely embracing him. That word embraced, at least in my translation, you might see uh, something slightly different, but it says to f- it's not just a hug, it's to fall upon, to rush or to press upon, to lie upon one or to fall into one's embrace. It's a complete bear hug. He's not just going out and greeting his son, he is completely enveloping him. There was, um, as I was reading about this, um, this situation uh, in this story, there's a bit of um, history and sort of uh, cultural norms that would have been expected at this time uh, that we don't necessarily understand. So there was, um, there's something called a, and I'm probably going to have a terrible pronunciation here, but it's the Kazaza ceremony. It's K-E-Z-A-Z-A-H, Kazaza. And this was a ceremony where in a Jewish community, if somebody had taken um, their inheritance or taken what was sort of um, earned from their family and gone and wasted it, specifically like with the Gentiles or other communities, they would enact this, this ceremony of, of Kazaza. And so when... 
when this individual would have returned home, the villagers uh, or the, the people, the Jewish people within that community would all come out, and as the person would come back, they would go and they'd get them at the outskirts of the town, like before they had completely come back. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they would all come out with pottery, clay pots and pans and plates or whatever they had, and they would break them at the feet of this person who was returning. And this was to symbolize to the community and to the person that their relationship was broken and that they were to be completely cut off from them at that time. So when we see this, this younger brother in the story, what we hear is, okay, he's, he's walking back home, that's, that's no big deal. But to the people of this time, they would have actually been expecting the father to come out and to do what? To do this ceremony where they would be completely, really like excommunicated from the family. And that's why it's so important that this is where it happens. So he, and, and you know, if this is an actual true story, we don't know, but if this is the father, he's actually rushing out before anyone else can to say, no, no, we're not doing that. We're actually bringing him back in. And I think that's really cool. We, would have ne we never kind of get that sort of context without understanding where they came from. And this is why the father is so quick to run out there. And running at that time was actually something that was seen as very improper. Because they all have like, you know, the, the long skirts and whatever they had to like hike them up to run. So it's like, it's considered something that's very, very, um, like a humiliating thing. So that father is willing to humiliate himself to go and retrieve his son before anyone else can sort of shame him or, or go through this ceremony. So I think that's really cool. So we see here the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, uh, this is verse 22, and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, put shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found, and they began to celebrate. So again, the prodigal's desire was just to be a servant in his father's house, but we see immediately he's reinstated. He puts a ring on his finger. They put shoes on his feet. They put the best robe on him. This is so he remembers who he is. I think this is one of the things that we have to see about the father in all contexts, not just in this story, but in our own life, yeah. is that he sees what's on the inside. Yeah. And he knows the value of the person regardless of circumstance. This father had every right in this situation to really banish his son, to leave them on the outskirts, to, yeah, maybe make him a hired servant. That would have even been considered compassionate. But he takes the time to reinstate him. And not just, okay, you can be my son, again, begrudgingly, but we're going to celebrate. My son is back. I'm going to kill a fattened calf. That was, killing a fattened calf was like, that's expensive. It's not fully grown. There's not as, as, as much meat on it. You could get much more for it later. Like, this was a delicacy. And I want you to picture this in your head. This is the picture that I think is meant to stick with us more than any, is the father that is accepting his son back into the fold. I think that it flies directly in the face of really what is like considered to be earthly wisdom or an earthly reaction to the same situation. 
has anyone else like, and I think we've all kind of been probably at, at one time or another a prodigal in, in one area of our life or we've maybe even been the older brother, but have you ever had that, that nagging suspicion sort of on the inside of you that, well, I'm not worth it? Or like, I'm, I'm too far gone, or maybe my relationship with the Lord isn't as strong as it should be. I haven't, I haven't talked to him in a long time. I, I, it's not, it would be a hassle. Like, we'll see it as a chore for us to like reach out to him. Or, okay, well, he only, you know, I'm only reaching out because I'm in this bad place. He doesn't want to hear from me now. That's exactly what the younger brother is doing in this situation. I mean, by all intents and purposes, he dug this hole for himself. He put himself there. And we don't see the father begrudgingly, you know, pulling him out of his debts or whatever he has going. He embraces him and, and celebrates it. So I want you to remember that this, and if, if anything kind of sticks with you from today, it's that picture of a father who never sees somebody that's too far gone. And when that, when that thought rises in the back of your head of, well, I shouldn't. I shouldn't run to the Father right now. This is just because I'm in trouble. This is, this is my fault. I'm, I'm, I'm the reason I'm in this way. And he, he couldn't, it would be a chore for him to talk to me. Think about this story. I think that's what it's really supposed to drive home to us. So please keep remembering that. He was always watching, waiting. The, this is the other part that is kind of interesting. So the Father thinks that the younger son is dead, but he still catches him afar off. He still catches him before he is even, you know, back to the house or whatever. He was watching. He was waiting for his younger son, who he presumed to be dead, to come back. He never gave up on him. So don't think that, again, you're going to have to, like, arrest the father's attention back to, like, you know, when you haven't spoken to him in a while, you're going to have to, like, work for it. He is, like, eagerly waiting, just like, come on, waiting for us. So then we get to uh, go on here in verse 25, and we, uh, we see the, 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 the final other character, right? Our older brother in his reaction. So verse 25, he says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. Talk about, like, the worst timing. I'm like, the prodigal should have come home on a Sabbath or like the weekend when his brother wouldn't be working, but he is coming home, there's a celebration going on, and the brother's out in the field working, of course. This is like just the worst timing. So verse 26, he called to one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. So nobody even got him. Did you think about that? He is out there working, and they just start the party, and he's just still working. Nobody even told him. So it's like, it's a pretty big slight, and I think I can get where there's like the frustration there. And so he comes in, he has to find somebody like, what is happening? What's going on? And then he finds out. He said to him, your brother has come home, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we can all understand that you know, that idea that the, you know, that older brother sort of uh, thinking, if you're putting yourself in those shoes, he's been working. He's probably starving. He, I'm, I'm imagining he can smell 
the barbecue that's going on, and he still refuses to go in. Like this is some this is some real disdain. So he's. I was uh, when I was reading this, I was thinking about, um, and maybe maybe you guys too. But like the the thought of somebody who's working rather than being with his father. I was thinking about um, it's Mary and Martha that were with Jesus and. Um, Martha is spending her time serving and like doing the dinner thing, and Mary's just like at Jesus's feet, and it's that that same sort of um, that same sort of duality there. And the older brother, this is what's you know one of the interesting things is the younger brother came back and he was immediately reinstated. He wasn't reinstated because of um, something he did or because of his great apology. He was reinstated because he was a son and his father still recognized his identity as a son. Whereas the older brother, he is trying to develop and validate his own identity based on his work. That's how he sees how faithful he is, how valued he is in his home. That's how he sees his worth, I think, in this context. So he's not only not happy that his brother's still alive, but he refuses to just go inside and greet him. Again, probably missing out on the good food um, and the fattened calf. And so again, now the uh, think about, put yourself in the mind of the Pharisees listening to this. So they were at their ultimate high, hearing about the prodigal son living in the filth and being with pigs, and now they hear this like complete injustice of the prodigal coming home, being reinstated, and they probably just can't understand it. And I think that they can really, after they saw what Jesus was doing with sinners and tax collectors, the time he was spending with them, how he was honoring them and humbling to them, they're, they're now really connecting with this older brother because they just had the same feeling toward the sinners and the, the people around them. So verse 28, um, the, the father comes to entreat with the, the older brother. His father came out and entreated him. But when he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. So pause. How is he referring to his brother here? What does he call him? This son of yours, he is immediately disassociating himself with his brother. He's calling it, your son has come back. And I, I think about this, like what Angela and I say to each other, I'm like, do you know what your son did? <laughs> when we say things like that, it's, it, was, it was to disassociate. It, he's not even his brother anymore. This is just my father's son. And... Uh, he's really, he's, he's, he is verbalizing and in his own heart he is enacting that ceremony we talked about earlier, that kezaza, right? He is, he is breaking his brother off from him. He is, he is putting a line of separation in his own heart. How does he know that there was prostitutes involved? Because that's what he would have done. There's no, there's no mention of that. We have no conclusions to draw from that. 
but he just assumes the worst, and he knows where he would go if he spent all that money, right? And so I think the brother is kind of, he is immediately, while he's been faithful, he's been working in the fields. Again, what does Jesus do? He has seen the heart of somebody. I mean, have you ever been served by somebody whose heart wasn't in it? But they were serving, they were working. I, I've probably been that person before, right? And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. He's seen the Pharisees, and they are, right, we kind of, you know, these days maybe use religious as a dirty word, but they are religious in the most religious way ever, right? They're doing their traditions, they're memorizing the whole, what, first five books of the Old Testament. I mean, they are doing everything right, but he's looking at the heart, and he's trying to see where are their hearts. So we, uh, we get left here on a bit of a cliffhanger with this story, verse, um, verse 31. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad, for your brother was dead, and he is alive. He was lost, and he is found. So this is like the final icing on the cake, and Jesus tries to hit home that he values both parties equally. And he reminds us that we need to kind of tear down these camps that we put ourselves in that said one is the righteous, one is the you know, unrighteous group that we're trying to like divide ourselves into and, and trying to separate who is his child and who isn't. In this context, the older brother actually would be running the household now. The younger brother had his inheritance. He took what was, was his. His portion has already been given. And now he's coming back in, working the household. The older brother is the one who's going to inherit this double portion, the rest of it all. And he's going to be running this household. His brother will be pretty much a servant in his house for years to come. But he is so angry that he's been brought back and that he's been met with kindness. So I'd like to just do some quick summaries of these characters because I think that there is, um, there's pieces of each of them that, again, there might be an area in my life where I have that older brother, that self-righteous kind of, kind of leaning, or there may be a way where I'm maybe the wayward prodigal and, and, and kind of you know, going off and seeing, putting my way above, above the father's. But really, we want to look at like what is the father's tendencies in these things. How does he react? So these are the, the, the sort of the indicators in our lives that we can be looking for. So the prodigal son, he's the wanderer, the rebellious, or the, you know, the unrighteous type. The prodigal can be foolish or careless, impatient, entitled, right? That entitlement of, I want to get what's mine, I want to get what's coming. A heart of rebellion, a tendency to seek the fulfillment in one's own way. Again, we put our way higher than his. And I don't think that this needs to be our entire life's uh, direction. It can just be one area of my life that I have this, that I can repent from, and that I can be convicted in. So he turns from righteousness and denounces wisdom. Has anyone ever denounced wisdom or turned away from it? That's, that's, that's an easy one to fall into. So the older... The older brother, right, the self-righteous, or the, the Pharisee, has an attitude of self-righteousness, a disdain for mercy. I think that that was one of the things that struck me, is the older brother, 
is like as a, as a characteristic that we can be thinking about and looking for, it's someone who gets upset about somebody else's favor. Right? Because that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm mad that I'm not getting that favor, but I can't even let that person be reconciled. And they almost don't want to see mercy. Right? That older brother spirit wants to be like, I want them to get justice. I want them to get what's coming to them. So they, uh, they believe their works are what drives their identity, right? So they're very much, this is, I have to work my way um, into good graces. So what, what does the father demonstrate here, right? And we've seen this in, in several ways. He demonstrates unconditional love. So he looks past the current circumstance of what someone is doing or what they're going through or what they've said, and he sees the unique individual's identity, right? And their heart, their, their sonship. A father forgives before the apology is received. That's the other thing to notice there. The father ran out and embraced his son and welcomed him back before he apologized, before he changed his ways it was as soon as he saw him. He couldn't get the words out. And that's something we can be building up in ourselves. So he treats people on their identity and love rather than outward actions. So I have a few um, quick final takeaways. Any, any thoughts from anybody before I, I wrap up here? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's good, Jason. And Jason was saying how we can we can sometimes tend to believe that the father is uh, has turned away from us, right? Because we haven't been pursuing him or holding up our side of the relationship, and that that couldn't be further from the truth. And that's what the the father shows us in the story, right? He is always waiting for us to come back. There is no, I can't believe now you're coming to me when you need me uh, kind of attitude, right? Uh, did you have one, Dylan? Here, hold up. I want to get you a mic. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I thought it was interesting that as the father was awaiting for his son, he knew the humility it took for his son to even come back. Mm-hmm. And so before he could let him finish, he already knew what, and he didn't want his son to continue to feel that way. And that's why he immediately met him the yeah. way he did and was like, bring all this stuff for him, let's celebrate. Yeah. Well, I like that he, he, cuts, like, he cuts off his apology, right? That's kind of the impression we get. He's in the middle. He's like, just make me a servant. He's like, no, you're, you're coming back. You're part, you're part of this family. You're a son again. So one of the things that I love about the, uh, the way the older brother reacts. It, it reminds me of the parable of the, the workers in the field and how unfair it was, as, as we would look at fairness, that the first people worked all day long and then there were these people that showed up at the very last minute and yeah. they all got the same wage. That's a good one. But that tells me a lot about the heart of the father, though. Um, you know, I think that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, there's some up here. <coughs> I feel like both sets of brothers 
struggled with the same thing. Mm. Just one was you could see it, and the other one you couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Does that or, make sense? Or at least not until the end when it kind of came out, you know, in the older brother's actions. Eventually it came out. Yeah. And I think that both of them sort of didn't understand their identities, right? The, the first one went out, he's going to do things my way, I'm going to do it, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be like my father, I'm going to do things my way. And the, the older one said, I am a son because I do this thing. Like, I'm a son because I am this person. So neither one, like, or based on his works, right, neither one really truly understood how their father saw them. That's, and that, that's the, is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Uh-oh. Hot take coming in. Yeah. Can I make a little bit of a controversial statement? Do it. Because I feel like the father in this story gets away unscathed. <coughs> and we never were like, hey, you know, because we say, oh, the father is God. But in the father in this story, <coughs> I hope that we learn a lesson as fathers to appreciate the ones that did stay. Oh, yeah. Like, if you're just making an assumption like, well, you have everything that I have, it's all, and you never actually make the appreciation. Hmm. Kill a goat for your kid every once in a while. Yeah. Like, it's not going to kill you. It's not. So <laughs> the, it, maybe he did, and the son just never noticed it. It doesn't say in the story. Sure. Right? Maybe he did. But maybe he never killed a goat for his kid. Hmm. So, like, the people that stuck around, like, the, the people that have, like, done the work, it, it's some good energy to put in being like, you know what, I really appreciate this. Yeah. So. My, um, I remember growing up, uh, we were on swim team. My sister and I were both on the, the Waynesboro Y swim team. And um, my sister would get so mad. Um, and we'd be driving home, like so. We were we were kind of the odd ones out at the, on the swim team. Just you know, to be real, we were the two homeschool kids amongst all the like public schoolers there. And so we, and of course, my sister was like super Christian at the time too. So like that just made her stick out even more. But she she used to get so mad that all of the girls on the swim team would get this specialized attention from the coach. And it was this, you know, working on their technique or giving these things. But it's because my sister never asked. And my mom would tell her the squeaky wheel gets the grease. But she would just put her head down, do what she was told to do. And she would not, you know, complain. She would not bring up, you know, these feelings. It was sort of, you know, locked inside. But these other girls would say, oh, I need help. I don't know what to do this. It was usually a way to waste time and not do the workout. But they would, they would ask for these things and they would get these things and it was discouraging to say you know hey these people that are always asking and always getting and then I'm just sitting here working you know she very much had that like I'm just going to do the work and I'm going to do it so I think it is a good reminder for us to to really give that praise and to to look at those who are faithful uh, and who remain um, that's a good good thought anybody else I felt like um, the father didn't go after the son. 
because the father knew if you had brought the son back, he would have done the same thing. Yeah. But he stayed at the gate every day huh. because it was the older son's um, responsibility to go find the other brother. Really? Everything at his disposal. He should have gotten everything, the servants, the horses, and everything to go find the brother because mm. he was the brother's keeper. Yeah. And he lost the sight of being the brother's keeper. Wow. The possession. Yeah, I, I found that interesting too because um, in the first two parables that we read, uh, it, both the, the woman and the shepherd, they're actually the ones going to find the coin. Find the coin or, or find the sheep, right? So they're actually out there searching. But when it comes to the actual father and his son, he doesn't chase after him. And I think that I do get this picture that, like you said, if he would have gone out and sort of drugged the kid back, well, this is just sort of his father rescuing him from this situation, he wouldn't have repented. There wouldn't have been that actual heart change that said, oh, wait, I need to turn. And so if, if, if he had come out and he had pulled his kid back and rescued him, I think that would have really just set it up for maybe a, a cycle, right, of a cycle for these things to happen. So it actually took the decision on his part. I think that's important. Any final thoughts? So just um, to me, like the, the two takeaways from these, right, um, an, an element, and this is just what we see in all of Jesus' teaching, right, is he's always trying to show us the value in people that we don't see value in. It's who the Pharisees saw as in, inconsequential or just insignificant. That's who he really focused on, the least of these, right? And the other thing, too, right, is that these, and this is in all three of these parables, is that no one is too far gone. There's not an area of your life that's too far outside of him that it can't be turned, that you can't make that one small decision, that one piece of repentance. And there is literally rejoicing and celebration happening in heaven over one repentance, right? So those, those are the things I want you to remember. Let's pray real quick. So, Father... I just thank you for um, the opportunity to share uh, what you've shown me. And Father, I just thank you for these parables that really allow us to see your heart through a story. Father, I ask that you would bring to mind in us areas in our life where we're a prodigal or we're an older son and, and allow us to make that repentant decision, Father. I ask that now and, and over the coming weeks, you would really arrest our hearts. Father, allow us to be like the father in this story who sees the wayward son and eagerly awaits his return, who rejoices. Father, may we be the ones to kill the fattened calf, to see the value in what's insignificant by the world's standards. Father, I ask that this house would be a house where repentance and restoration takes place. Father, I ask that each one here would really just be a vessel to make that transition of repentance and restoration all the faster. May we let down our older brother tendencies to have the open arms of a loving father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Love you guys. Thank you. World Harvest Outreach is located in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, but we have family around the world. To connect with us, 
Visit us at whocenterpa.com.